did money that he started receiving from what he was doing, started kind of equaling out to, you know, what he was making that poor standard, and it got better, you know. So he started, oh, yeah, that's art then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, so we, when you look at it like all of us in art business, yeah, we, we can do this, you know. <laughs> and uh, Daddy, he, uh, like I said, it, it just, whatever he did, you know, we just kind of made some tracks behind him because that's part of the way we were raised. Yeah. I guess for me to consider myself an artist or Thorny Jr. to consider himself an artist, then it's because of him, you know. Right. This is Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. Something exciting has been happening here in Alabama. You may know Jesus' words from the Gospel of Mark, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Well, there's an Alabama artist whose work has been shown in some of the most important museums in the country, the Metropolitan Museum, the Whitney Museum, the American Folk Art Museum, the New Museum, the High Museum in Atlanta, the Houston Museum of Fine Arts, the Indianapolis Museum of Art the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Brooklyn Museum, the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. All this, but Thornton Dial has never had a large-scale exhibition of his work in his home state. Not until now. In the fall of 2022, there were three interrelated shows that together made up not only the first large-scale exhibition of Thornton Dial's work in Alabama, but also the first retrospective covering Dial's entire career. The Abrams Engel Institute for the Visual Arts at the University of Alabama at Birmingham had a comprehensive show called Thornton Dial, I Too Am Alabama. The Samford University Art Gallery exhibited works on paper and related works in a show called I Too Am Thornton Dial. At Mouse Contemporary, the show Anyone Can Move a Mountain engaged various artists whom curator Paul Barrett connected to Thornton Dial. Together, the three shows contained sculptures, works on paper, and assemblages, including many works never exhibited or published before. You can learn a good bit about Thornton Dial from the AVA exhibition website. He was born in 1928 in Email, Alabama. Email is in Sumter County. I lived in the Sumter County seat of Livingston when I was a child. Thornton Dial's great-grandmother raised him, and as a child, he learned to raise corn and sweet potatoes. When his great-grandmother died, he went to live with a relative in Bessemer, Alabama, in western Jefferson County. A coal magnate founded Bessemer, and the city was an important hub of iron ore manufacturing in the 20th century. Thornton Dial did various jobs growing up, masonry, carpentry, raising cattle, hauling ice. Eventually, he went to work for the Bessemer Pullman Standard Boxcar Factory, which also employed several other members of the Dial family, and in fact, most of Bessemer. After the factory closed in 1981, Thornton Dial spent most of his time making art. In 1987, Dial met the artist and musician Lonnie Holly. Lonnie Holly introduced Dial to an art collector and historian named Bill Arnett. Bill Arnett had brought Lonnie Holly and the G's Ben Quilters to national attention, and he began to do the same for Thornton Dial. 
You can learn more about Bill Arnett's work by exploring the website of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation, www.soulsgrowndeep.org. There's also a link at www.hereinalabama.com. That's H-E-A-R in Alabama.com. Souls Grown Deep is a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the work of Black artists from the American South and supporting their communities. There's an online exhibit of Thornton Dial's 2002 work, High and Wide, on the Souls Grown Deep website. Largely through the work of Bill Arnett, Thornton Dial is now an internationally recognized name in the art world. Paul Barrett curated the recent exhibits in collaboration with Lauren Evans, my colleague at Samford University. In August of 2022, I sat down with Paul, Lauren, and several members of the Dial family. Thornton Dial's son, Richard Dial, and daughter, Maddie Dial, were there, along with Richard Dial's son, Brandon Dial. We met at the Dial family home, and you can hear our chairs creaking and the radio playing in the background as we talk with one another. We started by introducing ourselves. I'm Jeff McGinnis, and we're here with... Richard Dow. Lauren Evans. Nanny Dow. Brandon Dow. And Paul Barrett. I asked Richard to tell us about some of his earliest memories of his father as an artist. I'm trying to see how to address that, you know, because, um, you know, I wouldn't say that he was born an artist, you know, but... He always did crafty things. And when he started growing as an artist, is really by the time he met Mr. Bill Arnett. And once he got engaged in that, Mr. Arnett kind of helped him financially so he could just really focus in that area because he used to be like all over the globe doing, I mean, everything, you know. But I think when he met Mr. Arnett, he started getting a little capital and he started kind of dedicating more of his time into creative art. I think around about 1986, somewhere in that neighborhood, you know, you could kind of see how he really started developing as an artist. In the beginning, they called it folk art, you know, and today they call it, you know, In 2007, Alabama Public Television did a documentary film called Mr. Dial Has Something to Say. You should watch it. There's a link at www.hereinalabama.com. The documentary takes on the somewhat controversial term folk art. Folk art might not be given as much respect as fine art or high art, but if you keep listening to this episode, you'll hear Richard Dial say he would hold his father's works up to a Picasso and choose the Thornton Dial any day. Both folk art and vernacular art connote art that reflects and embodies the heritage and values and traditions of a community. Thornton Dial watched and learned from other makers in the communities where he grew up. His children learned the processes of making art and making useful objects from him. Thornton Dial did not always see what he was making as art, though. And you could just kind of see him from the time that he got started. He just kind of kept developing, kept developing. It became his life. You know, it just was... It occupied his whole life, you know, other than seeing about his family and the rest of the time, you know, 
was dedicated to art. Mm-hmm. Right. How did he come to see what he was doing as art? I think once he, it's like I mentioned, you know, when we first came in here, I got real excited, you know, just looking at his works on paper, you know, it just, I don't think I was around, you know, maybe the first year or two. And after that, you know, I think he, he really started developing and he got, start getting attention and he loves attention, you know, so it was people would come by, you know, like in a bus, I think like Jane Fonda was one of them. So take his picture and he loved that, you know, it gave him an opportunity to talk and speak his piece, you know, uh, I think he just enjoyed the whole atmosphere around art, you know, so he just dedicated his whole life basically to art, you know, just... Do you remember when he started making the fishing lures? Oh, now that. If you want to know more about the fishing lures, look for a Forbes magazine article from October 19th, 2022. Paul Barrett points out in the article that Mr. Dial made things his entire life, but didn't necessarily consider what he made art. His earliest surviving creations are his fishing lures, which he made and used as early as the 1960s. The Abrams Ingle Institute for the Visual Arts has some of Mr. Dial's fishing lures. These fishing lures are especially important since Dial broke down many of his early creations and reused them in new works. I think he probably like maybe two or three years before he really met Miss Anya. Those were hardest of his. When Richard Dial talked about his father making things, he seemed to be drawing a distinction between hobbies and art, but he pointed out that his father invested himself completely in whatever he was doing. It's always like hard work, and he, whatever he got into, he just dedicated himself to that because he wanted to be successful in something. But, you know, and people would come around like, oh, Mr. Dial, you're doing this. Well, you just need to to know somebody that can help you, you know, and uh, he eventually, you know, he did meet somebody met with Mr. Bill, Bill Arnett, but before that, you know, during the fishing little time, you know, he would just come up with, you know, what he wanted to do to please his own mind, you know, and sometimes it didn't, well, majority of the time it didn't work out because he didn't get uh, a lot of attention doing that. A lot of people would laugh at him like, you know, like, okay. And, I mean, I don't want to say just people. I'm talking about the family, too, you know, because, you know, we was like kids coming up and like, okay, Daddy, you started on this project, so we want to go play basketball. But if he decided that, hey, he needs some help to do, get some materials, you know, so... That was a job for us, you know. <laughs> so, so we tried to dodge him, and 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 when I got interested, I, and he'd been doing things like that his whole life. But when I really got involved in it was uh, the day that I came in here, and uh, he was doing the works on paper, you know, and that just kind of like. And he knew he had my attention, you know, like, hold up, Dad, you know, let me see this man. I said, dang, that's great, you know. And he, he knew he had my attention at that time, you know. But, you know, you, you're a kid, you don't understand a lot of things, you know. You just know Dad is doing something. And he would always work on his hobby, you know, to 12, 1 o'clock, you know. And then he would get up and go to work. You know, when we was real young, you know, he used to trap fish, so he would sit there and sew, you know, big nets together to take to the river and drop in. Kind of stuck with him for a while, but 
he just kind of switched based on what what he dreamed up. If he dreamed it up, he felt like he could do it. Yeah. You said the works on paper were part, at least part of your inspiration. Right. Becoming an artist yourself. Yes, that that's so. But by the same token, you know, uh, people really have to understand that it was three boys. He treated us like we was like partners over here instead of kids, you know, and. He was just like another big brother he, when he had to be, you know. I mean, when he, every day activities, he was like a big brother unless he had to step out those pants and beat daddy, you know, like put you back in line. But other than that, you know, he was uh, like a big brother. And we was involved in everything he was doing. So when it came down to the art, you know, that uh, I think all of us kind of tamper around with that a little bit, you know. But that's just the way he raised us, you know, and, and we just kind of trailed him through life and even to this day, you know, and he's been passed there since 2016. I still turn around and ask him, well, what would Daddy do in this situation, you know? So that's just kind of where I live my life even now, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brandon, Maddie, are you artists yourselves? <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, I thought my other brother and I do have another brother, Thornton, and he did, you know, pretty good amount of art, you know. And he being uh, him being the oldest and me being next to the oldest, you know, so wherever daddy went if we was when we was too little to keep up with it, we had both of us on the shoulders, you know, like, <laughs> so we, you know, yeah. So. I received some draw talent from Brandon showed us a wonderful picture he had drawn of his grandfather. While he was looking for the drawing on his phone, Paul reflected on how the Dial family have always been making things. In 1984, Thornton Dial established Dial Metal Patterns, a wrought iron furniture business that blurred the lines between artistic and functional objects. There were other things that you made out of Dial Metal Patterns, and there was other fabrication and furniture right. and other things, right. even right. even if it was things for a store or for a job, right. it wouldn't. Well, uh, there was there was creativity and creation, right? And creation. All the time. Right. You know, uh, about three years, four years ago. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. And so we actually started that business in the backyard in a chicken coop. You know, I had to hold our heads down to go in there and. Uh, so after Daddy got really, really kind of interested in art, you know, we were working in his backyard. So me and my brother walked out there one day. Oh man, we got to have a place to uh, to make furniture because we can't get back in that place. You know, Daddy was just turning things over and over. You know, and uh, so we decided to go up there and erect that building up on Eleventh Avenue. There, you still kind of look at that as a success because that was a bridge for us to go across, you know, and it was it was hard, but I, I still look at it as being a, a success because it's, it 
played its role in our life, you know. But it, it was a business. It was with, a business with a where, lot of employees right. and, and a lot of jobs. Right. Up to about 25 employees, um, we had, you know, two or three, like, operations in there where we just powder coated for manufacturing companies and uh, the job I had prior to that when I stopped to go in business and he tried to get me to come back to work and I wouldn't so he just loaded up one of his whole departments and sent it over there and said well Richard you do that and I'm like okay well I don't know how this go well I'll send you somebody to show you how it go so we had like shipping like roof flashes and stuff out we would powder coat like lawnmower handles, anything, anybody walked off the street with uh, decided that they wanted powder coated, so it was a powder coat business. And, and the Dorado and Furniture was our, you know, design where we shipped all over the Southeast, you know. And most of the furniture stores, you know, that in the South, I mean, we shipped probably from Texas all the way back up to North Carolina. Uh, yeah, Tennessee, a little bit in Ohio, a little bit in New York City, Florida. I think that was uh, Badcock Furniture. You know, they uh, had about 300 stores, and so we kept them going, you know, right. I've seen pictures of some of the artworks mm-hmm. that you made, I assume, during that period, that time period, mm-hmm. the chairs. Right. And I just have to say, I... They're beautiful and they're joyful. I just, right. I love them. And I noticed that there are two words, comfort and prayer, that tend to recur in the titles of those pieces. Right. I wonder what those words mean to you specifically. Well, um, I think that probably just my expression, it was just a part of me. If you'll notice, like, even the patio furniture line, it was the comfort of trying to that name back up here, it's been about 20 years ago. A Shade Tree Comfort was one of our lines, you know. And uh, so that kind of rolled back over into the art, you know, because of me, kind of personally, I think I have a tendency to kind of name things as it relates to my life at that particular time, you know, right. So that just kind of like the, maybe the situation I'm in at that time. So. I mean, I was real impressed with the, the furniture business, and uh, I find comfort in you know most of the things that I do or put my time in. I, so I think I maybe inherited a little bit of my daddy in me because you know uh, once I get started, it's just kind of like hard to stop. So I, yeah. Do you think differently about something that you're making as art, or something that you're making to be? used? Uh, it's totally different. You know, art, you know, you gotta you gotta make an interesting as a piece of art. But by the same token, you know, you working with a piece of steel and it don't always want to cooperate with you. So you gotta first decide how is it possible to, to get, you know, the effect that you want with a piece of iron. So you, you do have to have a little bit of experience with, you know, forming iron or even painting for that go, you know, but to create images and things of that nature, you know, it just takes a lot more than, you know, a piece of crayon, to be honest with you, yeah. <laughs> so you have to be 
kind of constantly, you know, focus on how you gonna, you know, pull the whole project together with versus, you know, like manufacturing, you know, you got a certain setup or certain machine to be in a certain bin every time. I guess you know something about that too. My colleague, Lauren Evans, is a sculptor herself. Hey, I, I, I make sculpture, and, but not typically ever really things that are made for use. And so I mean, it's interesting just imagining what I know of your work. And right. you're speaking of the work, like, I love to talk about the, the machine to make the same bed every time. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, the work that you were making with the business was you were producing many of the same right, design. Right, right. Yeah. It's just so. uh, repetition, you know, you, 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 if you make thousand chair legs, you know, you don't really have to be there. You can call someone that's working for you and say, okay, I need a thousand legs like this one. And the machine, once you get set up, it's going to do that every time, whereas in a piece of art, and you're trying to bring out a certain image and don't nobody really know that image but you. So... You can't tell anybody, okay, I want to eyeball over here or down there. You know, you've got to be there to put it there. So it's a more hands-on operation, yeah. Okay, so you're still touching all the Every piece, that. every ounce, you know, every every little bend, you know, if it did it get bent too much or did it get bent enough or can I even bend it? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, yeah. Do you remember a piece in the show called Dog Show? Dog Show. I kind of got my loss on that one. Paul pulled up an image on his laptop and showed it to Richard. Okay, that's one of, uh, yeah, that's some of their earlier uh, images, yeah. And you can see yeah, some in, of those curves. Mm-hmm, right. Because the, my understanding is that the middle of each one of these, where the dog is, started out its life as a plant stand. Uh, yeah. And then they... That was where adapt one of the, <laughs> the projects, you know, that Dad was working on at times. So that was some of the earlier creations, whereas when he first met Miss Arnett and materials and things of that nature, it was a lot of it that probably just came from just around in there where mm-hmm. we were, you know, getting into the patio furniture and um, he just reaching got out of scrap pile and just said, well, well, I can do this with it. So it was really impressive, you know. Brandon reflected on the difference between being a subconscious artist and a conscious artist. I, I think with, with my, my grandfather, there's a there's a big distinction because I'm, I'm asked this question all the time about his earlier works and how he began things of that nature. There's a big distinction between the comprehension of him being a subconscious artist versus a conscious artist. And this is a big difference because you know what you are inside as a creator, but the world identifies you and puts a different meaning on you and a different definition on you elsewhere. It's similar to a person that likes to play around with dough and throw it outside and create different things about it. And then someone comes along and says, hey, you're making cookies. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't know this were cookies. I thought it was just my creation. Yeah. If there's a difference and what a person knows inside their mind and their heart versus what someone else comes and identifies them as doing. Then all of a sudden you say, okay, now I'm making cookies. Well, let me start adding some M&Ms to these cookies. <laughs> so I can choose these cookies and evolve my, my craft and how it's identified and which helps him internally as well. 
so for him, I don't think that there was, he's always had been a creator, but not necessarily an artist to himself. He always made things. My earliest memories of my grandfather's him constantly making things. I mean, it's, it's really weird, you know, because I haven't met a person that, that had that worked at the contingency to do something repetitively so much to this day for some things that he did when I was being three, four or five years old. What are, I, we talked about the fishing lures, but I'd be curious of what are other projects that you Well, the, uh, the flower stand, uh, yeah. I mean, that. It was the flower stands to go out in the uh, cemeteries. Well, it was just, you know, basic flower stands, you know, because uh, that's how he got to beat Miss Ernest, you know, because he had made a flower stand. And Miss Elizabeth, you know, one sitting on her porch. And that's how... Lonnie was looking at that and then... Remember that Lonnie Holly is the artist and musician who introduced Thornton Dial to Bill Arnett. He left there, I think he went to... Arnett left there and went to Lonnie's house and Lonnie had one of his fishing rooms, yeah. It was, you know, a number of different things. I mean, it was just... It was just a constant, like, creation of whatever. And... He took a lot of pride in it, you know, whereas no one else really even thought about it. But I kind of look at life as what you, in life, you figure what you want to be. But God have a way of really molding you in what he wants you to be also. So when you look back at, like, his early stage, it was a way of molding him into being what he were, you know, the day that he died, you know, because at the end, you know, that was like, his dream, I think, you know, he didn't know that, but that was one of his purpose in life, to be an artist that would get recognition. And the things that he did gave him the, the skill and the ability to become an artist. And as he started to develop an artist, I think that's the reason he, you know, got into it, you know, first, you know, because that's when he really found out that, hey, yeah, this is me, this is my purpose. And and uh, for 30 years, you know, that's all he could, that's what's the only thing on his mind. And he never did try to change anything else or do anything. And when I knew he had really, you know, like, okay, this is my life, because regardless of all the things you say that he might have did, he had a garden, and that garden was going to be every year. So once he let that garden go, you knew he had flipped. You know, he he he, he was an artist at that particular time. You know, like <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah. I mean, my whole life now—that's from the day I can remember him. He had a garden, and he had a field. You know, but. When things, as we got older, you know, he stopped doing really like farming, you know, so he kind of cut back after all of us went to work and then he would have that garden like every year. You're not going, I don't care what happened, he's going to have that garden every year. But the day when I looked at him like, oh, that ain't going to plant no garden this year. So he had started then, you know, like all of my time is going to be, you know, dealing with art. So, yeah. Well, there are other artists who have adapted metal items or, or welded and sculpted pieces right. and, and you know uh, Joe Minter Charlie right. Lucas, right. Ronnie Holly yeah. uh, and a lot of them have you know, they have great skill mm-hmm. as artists on their right. own but I'm not 
aware off the top of my head of any artwork that they made where they had made what it was originally as a flower stand, as a chair, as a table, and then taken their own creation apart to make a work of art out of it. Right, right. So part of what I really love about Dog Show and about some of the other pieces of this show is that someone who didn't know might think that your father bought these things Mm -hmm. and changed them or that, that he found them. But what's really important and interesting about them to me is that no, he, he made it and then he remade it. Right. Definitely. Definitely. To be honest with you, you know, personally, you know, from my background, I had some kind of idea of what it's going to take, you know, to, uh, to be able to, build the furniture. Daddy, uh, he was the one that really kicked it off. He just came in there one day because we was catching devil. We couldn't even make a chair, you know, and I was supposed to be the welder and I was supposed to be able to bend this stuff and none of it would work. And, it, you know, most people probably won't know this because this was in the chicken coop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he comes in there one day and he lay all these pieces out and said, we'll let it go. So I welded it together. He said, now bend it. So we bent it and that was the shade tree comfort. So from that that time on, we could sell to anybody. You know, I mean, it, we couldn't make enough. You know, we had, you know, track trailer truck coming in the front yard to pick up stuff, had took over the doggone front porch, killed boxes stuff up there, you know. But that was his idea, you know, to, and he actually designed that shade tree comfort, uh, yeah. I have a question as it relates to things you said while I was looking. You talked about seeing the seeing your dad work on the works on paper. And right. Feeling like a, a turning point. Was that in this space? That was actually That's in cool. this room. That's- Matter of fact, he had a and and that uh, a drawing table. You know. Um, before computers, you know, like all the engineers would have these great big tables with, uh, you know, I guess like hydraulics would raise up and twist and turn. So he had one about, you know, almost bigger than that pool table just sitting and sit right there. And so you could come in here like anytime. I mean, if it's raining outside, if it's raining, not raining, you got sunshine day outside working. But if for some reason he had to come in, you catch him sitting right there, you know, like drawing on that particular table. And that table is at the shop now, you know, that he used to work off of. Yeah. And you don't know what that is. Paul is showing a picture on his laptop. The door. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the, the door to the chicken coop, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the door to the chicken coop. And I didn't, uh, think much about it, you know, and Paul said, you need to get that door and put it up, man. <laughs> yeah. He, he means Paul Arnett. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we we actually have the door to where the, the first works that Richard was talking about in the show. That just gives me chills. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the question came up earlier, you know, like when did we, or when did he decide that he was, was an artist? But 
you can kind of see things that he had been working on that he incorporated into that art. And then that's when he started trying to find his way. Like uh, Paul just mentioned, you kind of see some of these same figures kind of like incorporated into the works on paper at, at first, you know. And then that's when he really started growing as an artist. But you would see some of these images and stuff that's uh, on these sculptures that that's where he were before, you know, that was just his creativity because these were some of the earlier pieces that he made. They were, so that's who he were before he got to be an artist. And then when he started getting attention as an artist, you can kind of see some of those things just kind of moved over into his artwork. And from that point is when he started like growing as an artist. And that, you know, he did for 30 years. Yeah. What do you think are some of the most important things you learned from your dad? Dad had ne never did like, uh, he didn't believe in giving up, you know. So I think the fight that he had in him, the work ethics that he had was probably the most important thing that I, I got from being raised by him. Now, all the other things were kind of added to that, you know, as far as, you know, manufacturing furniture. Uh, you, if you go back to that time, you know, here in Bethlehem, some of y'all might remember, like the Pullman Standard Plant, you know, and that, like, employed, like, just about everybody in Bethlehem, you know. But once they closed down, their money just got, like, you, if you got money, you still can't buy a job. So time was... During this period, time was really, really hard for anybody in Beth because everybody worked at Pullman Sam and it didn't exist anymore. So daddy, with him getting laid off, I mean, where the plant closing down, that's exactly when he started like to doing all these little like bricks and like flower stands and all this kind of stuff, you know, and it wasn't a market for it, but he didn't stop. You know, so that's where his mind kind of led it until he started like cooperating those things. Like once he met Mr. Arnett, then he started kind of cooperating those things into his artwork. Like, okay, yeah, with Mr. Arnett, those things have been around all the time. <laughs> you know, like, okay, we had enough of that, you know, but um, Mr. Arnett, he had the vision. He said, this guy really, really got the talent and I'm going to stick with him, you know, and um, so. It was kind of hard for the family to kind of take it serious, you know, because, you know, you know, we've been around this stuff all the time, you know, like, ain't nobody never, you know, paid him no money for it, you know, so, uh, but um, eventually, you know, things just kind of start developing and it developed slowly and it kind of, the money that he started receiving from what he was doing started kind of equaling out to, you know, what he was making that poor standard and it got better, you know, so you start, oh yeah, that's art then, <laughs> you know, like, okay, so we, when you look at it like all of us in the art business, yeah, we, we can do this, you know, and uh, daddy, he, uh, like I said, it, it just, whatever he did, you know, we just kind of made some tracks behind him because that's part of the way we were raised, yeah. I guess, for me to consider myself an artist, or Thorne Jr. to consider himself an artist, then it's because of him, you know, right. Would you say that 
your family and, and your life found its way into a lot of your dad's artwork. Found ourselves into his artwork. Richard had been telling us about how his father came to consider himself an artist and how the family came to understand Thornton Dial as an artist. How that led to Richard and Thornton Jr. being artists themselves and the whole family being endowed with creativity, as Brandon put it. The Dial family developed their understanding of art and of their own art over time through a process. Paul wanted to know how Thornton Dial's art reflected his family. We'll hear what Richard had to say about that in the next episode. Throughout this episode, you've been listening to the music of Queen City Avenue, a jazz fusion band based in Birmingham. I'll do a feature episode on them soon, so be on the lookout. You're listening to Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. Come back for part two and hear more from the family of Thornton Dial.